morning, church family. It's so good to see you, so good to hear you. Thank you for being with us. For those online, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It's such a meaningful time. Um, thankful, again, for though a struggling culture, a culture that is willing to recognize a holiday. And as Thanksgiving as Christians, a day to recognize every single day, one way or the other, give thanks. And I'm going to ask us to, to bow our heads before we start and meditate for a moment on what you're thankful for from this past week and one thing you're thankful for from this past year that the Lord has done. Would you do that with me for one minute? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow or turning. Thank you for your good gifts. Indeed, you have a way of weaving all things together for good to those who love you, to those who know you. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for your work this past week. And I know for some this past week was hard because it, maybe it was the first time they were missing a loved one. We pray that you give them peace and comfort and joy in you. And for a number of us, it was a time to gather together for, with family and friends again. Thank you for that. Help us to rejoice in those times and not take them for granted. Thank you for this year. We know we have another month to go, but as we start to wind down, Lord, you have been faithful. You always are. We know that you, your promises are sure. And indeed, one day, Jesus Christ will return for us. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. Until then, we just sing and worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing. Right, here we go. One, two, three, four.
Amen. And indeed, our God is for us. Romans 8 is one of many places that just firmly tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes down a long list of things that it proves nothing. There's nothing that can be against us. And that causes us to, to say, praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Our God is for us. Let's continue to sing. How great he is. How great thou.
voices. Let's sing it to him. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to Thank you. 
let's be seated. What an awesome thought and reminder this morning that our salvation glorified our Father. What an awesome thought. Thank you for that reminder this morning, worship team. I appreciate that. Well, good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, if you're here for the first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you. And also let you know that there is a connection corner in the back if you'd like to um, visit that after the morning service. We'd like to get a record of your attendance, and, but to also give you information about our church should you have any questions. Also following the morning service here is our Sunday school hour. If you're not sure where to go, they'll be able to point you in the right direction. So I encourage you to join us for our Sunday school hour following the morning service. Just a few reminders here. Uh, we do have an adult Christmas party happening on December the 9th. We will give you some more details here in the future, but just mark that on your calendar. Uh, we also want to remind you that this evening there is no evening service. So if you come back, you may worship, but you'll have to do it outside. <laughs> so there is no evening service tonight. Uh, we also want to let you know that um, today is going to be our last uh, radio broadcast. We say that for you as well as for our radio listeners. However, um, we are still going to be out there, just not on the radio. We have um, a video of the morning service uh, on our Facebook page, IBC Facebook page. And then also, if you want to listen to the audio, you can always go to the website, ibctawanda.org, to hear the audio. So just a few reminders for you this uh, morning. If if you have any questions about any of those, refer to your bulletin uh, that has some additional details on that. You know, the radio broadcast, that's been a long chapter in our life as a church. So again, if you are listening to this on the radio, we want you to know that we're very thankful that you have been listening and we are not going to leave you out high to dry. We want to be there for you if there is any way that you're on the radio and you realize now I'm not going to be able to listen to our church family anymore, um, please contact us. We do have online ways, but just pick up the phone, 570-265-6213. Give us a call. Perhaps internet is lousy where you live and you'd like a CD copy. We're glad to do that as well. But uh, again, just we're thankful for that, and we don't want to leave anyone feeling like they're, they're left out. So please let us know. Let's stand and pray. Father, we humbly come before you this morning, recognizing already in the music that we've sung, there is no one like our God. And... Father, may that just drive us to the point where we would dare not worship anything else but you, our God. Help us to be humble before you and walk in your ways. Help us to obey you and to be faithful. Help us to be like that tree firmly planted in water, as it says in, in the book of Psalms. Help us to look to the heavens from where our help comes from. 
We thank you so much again for this Thanksgiving season. Thank you for those who are here with us this morning that may not normally be with us because of this Thanksgiving break. May you bless them. Lord, thank you again for those that are newer, new or newer with us this morning. And we pray that we be a blessing as well and build a relationship together. Father, we pray for your protection upon this church. The enemy would seek to hurt us from the outside or perhaps from within. May you stay his evil hand and may your will be done in this church. We thank you very much for, for Don and Lynn and pray that their time off will be refreshing to them. Thank you for how they faithfully serve us and, and give us God's word. Lord, thank you so much for all the, the, the true, worshipers, true worshipers of you around this world, the ones that worship in spirit and in truth. Thank you that in you we are related as brothers and sisters. And thank you that you hear all of us at the same time and us individually. What an amazing thing that is. Thank you for this time together. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Let's be seated.
Thank you. The Sunday after Thanksgiving is also National Nate comes home and blesses us with Music Sunday. So glad you and Danielle come each year. Thank you guys. What an encouraging song. What a, again, you know, I've thought often in, in prayer time when I hear someone, and I've learned from these godly people, when they address God as Father in their prayer, they really know God. I mean, I really believe that, that uh, the heartfelt prayer that their dear Heavenly Father, um, what a amazing, unique relationship. No other God would have the inkling, even that the slightest thought of saying, you can call me Father. And absolutely not. Only God would allow his children to do that. And what a beautiful thing. He will keep us. He will sustain us. He will take care of us all the way to the end. Praise him. Let's stand and sing again before Pastor Eddie comes with a message.
Please be seated. Pastor Mike mentioned this morning the service has been on the radio for years. I remember sitting home at times when we couldn't make it out to church for one reason or another, sickness or whatever it may be. And I remember my parents listening to the radio broadcast of the service. I was young, and so I remember hearing it, and that's about it. But I do remember it, and it kind of struck me this morning as Mike was making his remarks. This is the last broadcast on the radio, and I'm giving the message. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, Lord willing, we will be blessed by God's word this morning, so let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to be gathered this morning to worship you because of the salvation that you have granted us, because of the love that was poured out for us, your grace which overflowed and your mercy that was extended to us, we have salvation. It was for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that we would not, of course, take that for granted, but rehearse it daily in our lives. Rehearse that which is ours because of Christ's sacrifice. What an awesome thing to be able to be together this morning to worship. We recognize there are many around the world today who do not have the freedom to do that. For one reason or another, they may have to meet in secret, or they just don't have the opportunity to do what we are doing this morning so freely. And Lord, help us not, once again, to take that for granted. I pray, Lord, as I present this morning, it would not be so much me, but it would be the power of the Spirit working through me to communicate the power of your word. Lord, we need to hear from you. We do not need to hear man's ideas or man's wisdom, for that does not bring salvation. In fact, it brings ruin in many cases. So, Lord, we pray that we would hear from you this morning. Give me, I pray, the words to be able to speak, to clearly communicate what you have laid on my heart, but most importantly, the truths of your word. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to ask you once again to turn to James chapter 1. This is where I what I spoke on the last time that we were together, and I'm going to speak on it once again um, this morning. The last time that we were together, we looked at um, chapter 1 of James, verses 1 through 20. And we 
kind of focused on the idea of who our God is in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the trials and the temptations of life. We looked at who our God is, and we, we understood that our God is one who is good and one who is sovereign and one who ultimately wants our good. And this was not a guarantee that life was going to be easy. In fact, quite the opposite is often the case. But our God is good, and in his goodness and in his sovereignty, he wants our good. There are two things that we begin to question, I believe, in the midst of trials and temptations of life. We begin to question God's word, and we begin to question God's character. We question whether or not God's word is really true. Did God really say this? Are his promises sure? I understand what God's word says, but I have this going on in my life. But this person is very difficult. Right? I know what God's word says, but we like to then add something onto that as to why maybe God's word isn't fully true in this situation. So we begin to question God's word. Sometimes we ask the question, how far can I go before I fall into temptation and sin? How close can I get to that line when all the time we should be asking, how can I back up away from the line of sin? What does God's word say concerning this? Is it true? The same question that was posed to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? We do that. The other thing we do when it's tied to his word is we question his character. Is God really good? God, do you understand how life is turning out for me? Are you sure you love me? You sure you, you sure you got this under control? Because life doesn't feel like it's under control right now. All things work together for good. Well, where's the good? Are you good? We begin to question these two things. And when we know that, when we know that we have a tendency to do that, I think it's actually helpful for us in overcoming the trials of life. But one thing we talked again about last time is, is who is our God? So four truths about God that we looked at from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and then we looked at 19 and 20 as well. But four things that we learn about our God are these. That God does not waste our pain. Right? God does not waste our pain. He is not interested in causing pain in our lives for absolutely no reason. There is a purpose in the pain that we face, right? You know, ask any trainer that, you know, you go to the gym and trainer is, is there, and, and what are they going to tell you? This is going to be really easy, piece of cake, no problem. You won't experience any discomfort at all. No. In order to experience the gain, guess what? There's going to be a little bit of pain, right? We don't like that end of it. But here's the point. Our God does not waste the pains of our lives. In fact, we know he uses them for good, right? 
We also know that God gives us what we need in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life. He's going to give us what we need. And we're going to look at that this morning. And then we looked at this. We looked at that God rewards those who are faithful in their love for him. Isn't that good news? That he will reward those who are faithful in their love for him. And then also that God only gives what is good and perfect. You heard Pastor Mike even pray that this morning in his opening prayer. We have a God who is not only good, but he gives that which is good and that which is perfect. Christmas is coming up, right? How many of you think you're going to get the good and perfect gift every time for those you're buying for? Probably not, right? We might be able to give nice things, but God's gift is good and it's always perfect and exactly what we need every time. It never misses. It never fails. That's who our God is. Four truths about our God that we can learn from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that we can hold on to when we face the challenges of life. Four things that are not going to change about who our God is. This morning I want to look at how then, in regards to who our God is, how do we have success in our trials? So we understand who our God is, what our God is doing, but what is now my response? What now must I do in response to who my God is, in response to the challenges of life? And we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to look at that in just the first eight verses of James chapter 1. And it's going to be about choosing God and his ways in life's difficulties. See, we have a tendency to want to choose our way, but it's about choosing God and his ways in life's difficulties. Some have suggested the reason James wrote uh, his epistle was because of the immaturity of the believer. This could be true. The idea of the church would have been new, so you might say it is understandable that many of the believers were immature in their faith. Certainly, this could have been the case. However, since James' audience is largely Jewish, the idea of seeking God and following his commands was not a new concept for his audience. So, for the new believer who has recently become a Christian, immaturity of faith might be expected. However, for those that are not new to the, con- or are new to the concept of church, but not new to the idea of faith, the immaturity should not be excused. So we can look at James's audience in one of two ways. They're new converts. It's expected. Maybe they have an immaturity of faith, and James is helping them to understand how they can have a maturity in their faith as it relates to the trials of life. However, his audience, I believe, was a little more diverse than that. He was also writing to people who maybe had been devout Jews for a long time, loved God, So this idea of trusting God is not new. And maybe they just needed a little encouragement as how they need to mature in their faith. How they needed to view life maybe differently than the way that they had been viewing it. Well, at least this is what some have suggested. um, 
But as we look at the first verses here, first couple of verses, um, I want to kind of point out this idea of choosing a godly perspective. James is encouraging us to choose to have a godly perspective going forward into trials. Now let's look at verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. I want to point out two things just real briefly, just real briefly here this morning on these two verses. First of all, and this is not something you're unfamiliar with if you've heard any messages on an epistle before, but how does James identify himself? He identifies himself, and depending on your translation this morning, either as a servant or a bond servant. A bond servant is the idea of one who has will, willingly placed themselves under the authority of another, willingly places themselves under the lordship of another. Here, he has placed himself under, uh, he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord, the master, Jesus Christ. He has willingly placed himself there. This is an attitude of submission. This is an attitude of, I don't own my life anymore. I'm giving it over to God. I'm giving it over to Jesus Christ to follow his ways. He's already starting out with a godly perspective, isn't he? He already recognizes my life is not my own. I don't get to do it my way. Well, that rubs us wrong, doesn't it? Because we like doing things our way. We like our comfort. We like life to turn out the way we want it to turn out, even though life rarely turns out the way we expect it to or want it to. Right? How many of you have ever, you men, have ever started one of those projects, right? I have a couple plumbing projects going on right now, and it's simple. <laughs> well, it would have been, right? But this went wrong, and that went wrong, and this was rusted, and that wasn't fitting right, and the gasket's not working. Ah! And you're just like, it should have been simple. Life didn't turn out even in the project of my plumbing the way I wanted it to. I have two buckets underneath two of my sinks. It's a slow leak, but it's annoying me, right? And it should have been simple. And I wasn't even trying to fix the leak. I caused the leak. <laughs> Life doesn't turn out the way we expect it to, does it? Right? But here's James with this godly perspective. My life's not mine. It's yours. I will follow you. You do with my life what you so choose. And he's talking to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Largely, they're probably scattered abroad because of persecution. And as a result of persecution, maybe they've, they've lost job, they've moved away from family, um, house, uh, loved ones, careers, right? Life isn't turning out the way they wanted it to. Persecution, being scattered for the cause of Christ. He's addressing them, and, and he's trying to help them to have this godly perspective about their current situation. Well, in verse 2, it says, 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word I want to focus in on here just for a moment is the word count. Now, you, your translation might be a little bit different. Okay, My translation here says count. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials. It's a financial term and it has the idea of to, to evaluate, to, to consider, uh, to have an opinion about, or to regard. Well, what is it that we are to regard? What is it that we are to have an opinion about? What is it we are to evaluate? Well, we are to consider or evaluate the trial. We are to regard it with joy. This does not mean that we regard that which brought on the trial as good. But the trial could have been a result of one's sin. Let me just back up and explain what I mean by that. If I do something stupid in my life and I sin, and my own foolishness has brought on the trial of life, then it's not me looking back and considering the sin that I've done as good. It's looking at the current situation that I'm in, the trial that I'm in, as an opportunity now for good. Again, if it's somebody else's sin that brings on the trial, I don't regard their sin as a joyful thing or a good thing. God's not pleased in other sin. But God, as we looked at, uses the current situation, the current trial, as an opportunity, as a teaching moment. We love to have those teaching moments with our kids, don't we? We love those times when, man, we feel so good because we were able to take a situation of life and we were able to speak truth into them and we just saw the light bulb go on. Like, you know, the light bulb moments. You're like, yes, they got it. Now if they can keep it, right? Um, but we, it's, it's a teachable moment, right? God doesn't waste any of those moments. Those are opportunities. And so when we evaluate it, we can evaluate it with joy, recognizing there is good that will come from this. Joyful attitude, however, is not natural. It's not natural. In fact, we don't like pain and discomfort at all, do we? We, we love to run from it. We love to escape from it. And in fact, if there's a conflict with another individual, we would rather avoid that individual, if at all possible, rather than to resolve the issue at times. Because we don't like the pain that it's going to cause for me to try and have to resolve the issue with a person. You know, and, and some of us treat other parts of our life the same way. If I can run from it, if I can hide from it, if I can get away from it. Now, there may be times when that is the right answer. To remove ourselves from temptation. You know, as Joseph did. Right? But Joseph, as a result of that, and Genesis faced a whole other set of trials, didn't he? We don't like pain. We don't like discomfort. And I believe this is why we need to train our minds. Paul tells us to do that. He tells us to do that in Romans chapter 12. 
We need to train our minds to think differently. We need to train our minds and our emotions to have a perspective outside of the immediate pain. And that's not an easy thing to do, is it? Because the immediate pain is bringing a great deal of discomfort. And sometimes that's all I see. But we have got to be able to train our minds and our emotions to be able to go outside of the immediate. And it is a training. It's not something that comes natural. It's something that we have to do every time we find ourselves in a situation. And it is a command. It is something we need to do. Count it all joy. It's imperative. It's not a choice. Well, I want to understand joy just for a minute. As we look at the context here, joy is not a result of the absence of conflicts in our lives. In fact, the opposite seems to be the case here. We can experience possibly a more deeper and more meaningful joy because of conflict. Conflict does not determine joy. There are, they are not mutually exclusive. The challenges we face are meant to focus our attention here on our God. How many times have you been in the midst of difficulty and you've forgotten to pray, you've forgotten to read your Bible, you've forgotten to spend some time with God, and you're in the midst of that difficulty, and all of a sudden you're crying out to God like you've never cried out to him before. You're, you're pleading with him. You're praying to him. You're, you're trying to focus in on him. You're trying to set your mind on what his will is. Trials have a way of doing that, does, don't they? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When the trial comes, it doesn't mean the joy leaves. The joy comes in many cases, as a result of the trial. I'm going to explain more of that here in a minute, but like, like David's attention was on God when he faced Goliath, or Stephen in Acts at his stoning, he looks up and sees Jesus standing before God's throne right before he dies. In the midst of those difficulties, what was their mind fixed on? Their God. Not, not so much the stoning that was happening, but their God. Not the giant, but the God. Do you think Stephen, in the midst of that, experienced any joy looking up to heaven and seeing his Savior in the midst of the stoning? I think he did. Do you think David had confidence merely in his own ability? No. In fact, he made it very clear to the giant Goliath, that he comes in the name of his Lord. But I think at the same time, we have to be careful here. We don't want to somehow fake a smile when we're feeling overwhelmed with life either. It's not a matter of just trying to walk around with a smile on our face. I don't necessarily think that's joy either. I don't think joy is somehow trying to convince people that everything is good when you feel emotionally compromised inside. I think we can have joy and experience other emotions at the same time. We can experience a range of emotions. 
while still having joy in our heart. I believe such was the case with Jesus. Jesus expressed anger in the temple court. He expressed sadness over the deaths of Lazarus. He also wept over Israel. He experienced great stress in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. However, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This then tells us that joy is as much a state of mind, if not more so than merely an emotion. It is a state of mind whereby we are firmly fixed on the sovereignty, goodness, love, and wisdom of our God. It goes back to the question is, who is our God? Is he a God who wastes our pain or not? Is he a God who gives us what we need or not? Is he a God who rewards those who are faithful to those who love him? Is he a God who gives that which is good and perfect? If he is, there's reason for joy in the midst of trial. Again, Joy, I think, is a bit of a mindset here. It's, it's taking our mind off the immediate to have a perspective outside of the pain. To remind ourselves, who is our God in the midst of this? Now consider Jesus as he worked with the disciples. Boy, he challenged his disciples an awful lot, didn't he? You think about what he took his disciples through. Most of us wouldn't want to sign up for that trip, right? Let's be honest. We're looking down through the gospel, and we're thinking all the things that he's taken them through, and like, do I really? I mean, yeah, it'd be cool to see some of those things, but guess what? The disciples didn't have foreknowledge. They didn't know what was going to happen in all the trials that Jesus took them through, right? Um. So he caused the disciples to experience all kinds of difficulties along the way. How about feeding the 5,000, right? The disciples had a solution. There's 5,000 here, people here. You've been talking for a long time, Jesus. We're all getting tired and a little bit hungry. Why don't you go ahead and send them away? And Jesus turns around and goes, you feed them. What do you mean we feed them? With what, Jesus. Look, if we even collected all the money and, and we gave this such amount of money, we wouldn't be able to have enough food to feed them. And look, here's a small boy with some bread and some fish, but what is that among so many? What are you, nuts? Like, you feed them, Jesus. Like, you, you, like you can't do it, right? Isn't it funny that Jesus challenged his disciples to do something they couldn't do? What do you think the point of that was? Feed the 5,000. Can't do it. Do it. What were they supposed to realize at that moment? Well, we might have to rely on something outside of ourselves. We might actually have to turn to Jesus. And by the way, the disciples did feed the 5,000. They just did it with Jesus' miracle. Right? Sometimes God will call us to some things that we don't feel we can do. And the truth is we can't do them apart from him. In fact, they fed them so much that they had food left over. I love that about Jesus' miracles. Man, he doesn't go halfway on his miracles, does he? I, I, I love that about him. Um, so it was a teaching opportunity, though. I mean, but think of the challenge of that, right? Your boss tells you to do something you can't do. Thanks, boss, Right? Disciples were insufficient to meet the most basic human need, 
but God in his sufficiency met their need. Uh, Jesus told them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Can you imagine that? Who's the fisherman here, Jesus? No one casts a net on the other side of the boat. What do you think? There's fish over here, not there? Like fish don't swim back and forth? He allowed them to experience life-threatening boat rides on the Sea of Galilee. That must have been fun. He had Peter walk on water. Hell, he didn't. He took them through uncomfortable journey through Samaria, even told them to witness to the Samaritans, the ones they despised. He said, we're going back to Bethany at one point. And the disciples had to remind him, don't you remember they tried stoning you last time they were there? you were there? Yep, let's go. Do you think that maybe somewhere along the line that they may, may not have experienced the joy we're talking about? You think maybe they didn't always feel the joy as Jesus was taking them through these different situations? You know, I can only imagine how often, you know, they said things like this. You know, we're tired. <laughs> we're hungry. You know, Jesus, we had a pretty long day here. You sure you want to do this now? You know, Jesus, we actually almost just died. Can we take a break? You know, now, Jesus, really? You want to, you want to take us through this now? And Jesus is like, yep, yep, because now is the time. Oftentimes, it is when we are most vulnerable, when we are at our weakest, when we are hungry, tired, had a long day. I'm sure you've probably all experienced those. And that one more thing comes up. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're just like, Really? Can't we just not right now? But here's the deal. Does temptation only attack when we are well-fed, well-rested? Does Satan wait until we are in a good mood? No. No. And so we need to be training ourselves now to think rightly to have a godly perspective it is certain that Satan will not wait until we are well rested to tempt us temptation does not wait until we're well fed if Jesus was ever at a place of vulnerability it was at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness when Satan tempted him and at the end of his earthly ministry in the garden. This is prime time for failure. But our Savior did not fail, and we have that same power working within us. The result of testing for the disciples, right? Peter's message at Pentecost. Disciples singing while in prison. And counting it all joy when they were persecuted for the sake of Christ. That didn't just happen. 
That was because of the testing, the trials that Jesus brought his disciples through. They learned joy is not based on the circumstances of the moment, but on the confidence of the sovereignty of their God to accomplish good through the challenges of life. The difficulties we face are merely tools to refine us. 1 Peter 7 through 8 says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. These things have a way of refining what it is we believe. But having a mindset of joy is a mark of a mature Christian. Let's look at verse 3 here. And I've kind of titled this one, uh, just pursue truth. Pursue truth. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Here's the first thing we need to understand about trials is your faith is going to be tested. Just If we understand that, we're ahead of the game. I really believe that. Um, we need to be aware that the trials of life are going to challenge what it is that we really believe. Is God's word really true? Is God really good? If we are aware that this is happening, this knowledge will help but better prepare us for the temptations that we are going to face so that we're not so quickly questioning God's goodness. We will be able to better resist the temptations and hold on to truth, knowing this is critical to our success. You know, I... I've listened to my wife several times talk with some of her friends on the phone, and I can only usually hear one side of the conversation, right? But I will usually understand from the other side of the conversation that um, her, one of her friends is saying something like, you know, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling this, and this is what's going on, I'm feeling like this, and, and, and my wife will patiently listen to all the things that the other person is saying, Right? And she will even say, I understand this is how you're feeling. And, and sometimes she'll even repeat back, and this, is, and this is what's going on. This is how you're feeling. I can completely understand that. But let me ask you a question. What's the truth about the situation? Let's not just talk about how you feel about the situation, but what's true? What's real? Because the, the thing is, emotions have a way of veering us off the path of truth. And it's good to kind of have to be brought back onto what's true, what's real. And that's when, in part, what this verse is kind of challenging us with. So your, your faith is going to be tested. So we need to come back to what's real, what's true. Not just what do I feel in the midst of the, the emotions of the situation. The result of our faith being tested, though, is as Peter points out in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that the genuineness of your faith is revealed. We can stand strong against temptation. We can have victory over sin. We can be spared from making foolish decisions and, and the pain that's associated with making those foolish decisions. In other words, 
in our emotions, we can make some really foolish decisions. But if we hold on to truth, we hold on to the reality of our faith, we can avoid the temptations so that we don't experience additional pain in our life. How many of us have faced a situation and we only made it worse because of following the wrong path? Hang on to your faith. Realize your faith is going to be tested. Hang on to what is true, what is real. And when you do, you're going to spare yourself a lot more pain. And we will be pleasing to our God and reflect his glory and his character to a world that desperately needs it. I'm going to move quickly through the next points here. But your faith is going to be tested, but that testing is going to produce patience. And knowing that, again, is, is, is key to success. The testing is not so much for the teacher, but for the student. It determines or it declares to the student how much they know. When a coach or personal trainer pushes an individual to perform and take it to the next level beyond what they thought, the, the student thought they were able to go, it is not for the coach, but for the sake of the individual. The benefit is to the individual, though it is uncomfortable. And I don't know how many times I try and stress this with my students, right? You know, I don't remember. I, I don't stay awake at night remembering all the tests I handed out and the grades that they got. I can sleep fine at night regardless of the grade they got because it wasn't necessarily for my benefit but for theirs. Same is true for testing. When we go through the trial, when we go through the test, it is for our benefit. Just like, just like middle school, high school students, we try to avoid the test though, don't we? <laughs> or skate by, get a good enough grade just to pass. As I undergo the testing God gives me, or as God takes the situations of life and uses them to test me, it is not for so much for God's gain and understanding, right? So he knows what I'm capable of, but for my own development. And trials are there to mature us. Patience is not merely accepting the circumstances of life, though. It is courageously persevering in the face of the suffering and the difficulty Testing works for us, not against us. Um, have you ever met a person who is extremely impatient, right? Or a person who can't seem to handle even the, the small difficulties of life. They are they're constantly complaining. They're not a lot of fun to be around for any period of time, right? Um, and on the flip side, have you ever met an individual who just doesn't let the ups and downs of life get to them? And you wonder, what is their secret to life? How is it they're succeeding so well in life? Well, James is sharing it here with us, isn't he? See, immaturity breeds impatience, but maturity breeds patience. I know we all have our different personalities, and I remember one person once telling me, you know, because of my particular nationality, I can't be patient. had red hair that helps <laughs> and I remember this individual <laughs> I, I love this lady but I remember her just telling me I, I look I've heard those messages a hundred times but you have to understand uh, you know because because of my nationality I, I, I can't do that my personality it's it's not worth trying how long you been saved right and I just remember her just going on and on and telling me about this, and I'm just like, really? 
So God's grace is limited to your hair color? I mean, dye it already. Do something because God's grace is not limited to, you, to, to, to your nationality, to your personality. Right? It's not limited. Granted, some of us struggle a little more because of our personalities. But God's grace is not limited in producing patience within us. Um, sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Um, all right. The, th- the truth is, James is writing to a large group of people, right, with various personalities. Despite our natural tendencies, our personalities, uh, we can learn to endure, right? This is God's goal for us. Um, God wants to make us patient because that is the key to every other blessing. Get that. It's the key to every other blessing. The little child who does not learn patience will not learn much of anything else. When the believer learns to wait on the Lord, then God can do great things through him. Abraham ran ahead of the Lord, married Hagar, and brought great sorrow into his home. Moses ran ahead of God, murdered a man, and had to spend next 40 years with sheep to learn patience. Peter almost killed a man in his impatience. A joyful attitude and an enduring faith are in mark of a mature believer. Next, we want to surrender to God's refining work. But be patient, it says, or excuse me, but let patience, verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is going to accomplish his work in and through us. This is his plan. It's been foreordained. However, when we choose to fight against his work rather than submit to him, we miss the blessings along the way. We need to be willing to surrender to what God is doing. The sanctifying work that may be at times painful, it is this sanctifying work that is evidence of God's love for us. It is proof that he has not given up on us. It does not mean that we just give up. In other words, when when it says uh, in verse 4 here, but let patience have its perfect work. It doesn't mean just let go, just whatever. This is not a fatalistic uh, or stoic philosophy here. You know, life's going to happen to me. Might as well just take it. No, that's not it at all. It, it doesn't mean that we give up. In fact, it means quite the opposite. It means that we are actively seeking to understand what God is trying to teach us. It means we are actively placing ourselves in a position of trying to learn. It means we need to spend some extra time in his word and in prayer. It means we need to find an accountability partner, maybe, that will keep us faithful to the spiritual disciplines. It means we actually work harder. Let patience have its perfect work does not mean we just give up. It means we work harder. Paul says it this way in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not work for your salvation, as you know. It's work out your salvation. Know your salvation. Study your salvation. Understand the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. Live out the gospel. That's work. That takes energy. The point here is that surrendering to God's refining work is not a passive thing. Again, it means we become even more engaged in knowing God and his salvation. He has given us... Um, um, he has given 
us and hmm. sorry I just lost my place there it means that we are actively surrendering our will so we can be positioned to follow the father's will it means surrendering an attitude of self-centeredness self-sufficiency self-dependency and self-focus it means trusting God has a plan even though we might not be able to see it now on this side of eternity. All of this takes work on our behalf. This changes our focus on a God who has a plan rather than us. As we selfishly and actively surrender God, the result is that we receive the blessings of God and maturity that can only be found in a Christian who is walking faithfully with their God. In doing so, God accomplishes his work of perfecting us, of maturing us. As Pastor Don said in his last message, that we can be thankful for the sanctifying work that God is doing in our lives. That sanctifying work is a maturing work. It is setting us apart from evil so that we can live holy as our God is holy. If we're going to have any success with this, we must exercise, though, a great deal of wisdom. Like, good, I want to live right. I want to do what's right. How do I do it? Right? James gives us the answer, and we're going to briefly look at that here. Look at verse uh, 5 through 8 with me. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let, that, but, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. If you lack wisdom, um, we, can search, we can search out God. This wisdom is not a sudden endowment of knowledge. It's, it's not uh, suddenly we're going to have the wisdom to f- solve all of life's problems. It would be nice if that would happen, but it is simply asking God to help us take what we already know or what is presented to us so that we can begin to make good choices in our life. To help us not to be led into temptations by our own desires. We know that our faith will be tested. We know that this testing is for our good. We know who our God is. How do I at this point take that knowledge and appropriately use it to make wise choices that will lead me on a path of maturity? And that's all it is. It's, God, how do I take what I know what, that you've presented to me? How do I take that information? How do I take the truth that I have pursued and use it to make wise choices in my life? I don't believe God is going to suddenly endow us with some great wisdom whereby we're going to spout Proverbs like Solomon. Right? It's going to be that momentary, what do I need to do here? What is the knowledge I need to make a good decision here? This is, this is why we need to take time to pray, to refocus on what is important. The emotions will pass, the hunger will pass, the tiredness will pass, the bad days will pass. We need to have a mindset that is focused on eternity, on what really matters. And I'm not suggesting that trials are not real or that they're trivial in some way. Um, I'm not suggesting that we should be devoid of other feelings. 
what I am suggesting is that we need to have an eternal perspective that gives us a vision beyond the trials so that we can make decisions during the trials. This is the wisdom that we need from God. When we ask, ask in faith. Believe that God is faithful. Believe that he will deliver. How do we do that? Well, I believe it starts with expecting God to answer. Look for his answer. Look for it in what you know. Look for it in what God will reveal through his word, through prayer. Look for it in other people who will give you good godly advice, whether it be family, whether it be a message you hear, whether it be um, friends. Look for God's wisdom in all of these things. Be proactive in seeking God's wisdom. And God will give us success in trials if we pursue him. So success in trial, here it is. Choose a godly perspective, pursue truth, surrender to God's refining work, ask in faith for wisdom. Let me just close with this. I said this last time I was here, but if we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter, not better. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that you'd give us an eternal perspective rather than a temporal, earthly perspective as we face life. Help us, Lord, to have this perspective that will lead us into pursuing your truth and to surrendering our life for you. And, Lord, asking in faith for the wisdom that we need. Lord, we can't do it apart from you. Give us the grace that we need to do this. Lord, there will be challenges of life that we will say, how in the world am I going to get through this? Maybe some, even this morning, are in that trial where they're just wondering, how am I going to get through this? Lord, I pray that your word would be an encouragement to them this morning. May they surrender to your work, to your refining work. May their faith grow. Shall we stand? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling with something going on in your life. Give us the opportunity to pray for you. Give us the opportunity to come alongside. Whether you speak to a friend, a pastor, give us that opportunity. If you're here this morning and you know that the thing the most pressing on your heart is just surrendering your life to our Lord and Savior. Again, give us the opportunity to share his word with you further. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we go from this time, I pray that you would direct again our hearts to you as we spend some time in fellowship and in your word during the Sunday school hour. In Jesus' name, amen.